Blog Talk Radio. Radio Inside Edition here. This is March 2018. Happy St. Patrick's Day. And the music is going crazy for some odd reason. So we're glad that we're uh, happy to join you wherever, however, wherever you listen to the show. It's great to be able to speak to you today. we got two outstanding authors coming up for you. First, we're going to have New York Times bestselling author Laura Childs to talk about her latest uh, Tea Shop Mystery book, 19th in the series, called Plum Tea Crazy. And then we're going to be followed by our next guest, Thomas Greenius, and he's going to be on to talk about his latest book. So we got a lot of things going on here for you today, one hour for you, so make sure you stick around. Uh, of course, you can listen to everything on, uh, on demand. If you go to iTunes, subscribe to Suspense Radio. You can get everything there, too, and all the shows that we have, including Beyond the Cover, The Story Blender, and um, Inside Thrill Radio, uh, hosted by Jenny Milchman. All that, all of our... Um, Weird, weird sounds going on. So we want to remind you that all of our shows here are brought to you by Kensington Books. Please make sure you, you visit kensingtonbooks.com for more information on their stuff. So without any further ado, let's jump right in. The, we, we've been able to interview Laura before for the magazine, but this is the first time we've been able to have her on the um, radio show. And I just found out that her, this is her 42nd book, uh, and it was called Plum Tea Crazy. The book is out now. came out March the 6th, so if you're listening to the show, you can pop right on over to Amazon and get it. So, Laura, we want to thank you so much for coming on today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. And top of the morning to you. It's St. Patrick's Day. That's right. St. Patrick's Day. Everybody drinking their green beer, green eggs and ham, whatever they want to do, green wine. Irish, um, Irish breakfast you know. tea, too. <laughs> exactly. I'm just sitting here in my Dodger yeah. Blue. Uh, looking at the sunshine. Thank God the rain stopped here in Los Angeles. But well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, not a big, not a big St. Patrick's Day person. I don't drink, so I just kind of let everybody else have fun with it. <laughs> Check out all the. And crazy. I think they do. I, I yeah. definitely think they do today. Yeah. <laughs> People watching is a fun is a fun pastime, I believe. I think it is too. Yeah, and so is writing. <laughs> yes, and speaking of writing, so. You know, this is your 19th um, book in your series, in your Tea Shop Mystery Series, and it's called Plum Tea Crazy. That's right. And the book is out now. So give us a little bit about about the mystery of what you have inside this one. Well, this is the 19th one, as you said, and it involves a woman named Theodosia Browning. She owns a little tea shop called the Indigo Tea Shop in Charleston, South Carolina. And she works there with her tea master, Drayton, and her baker, Haley. And they also have a tea shop dog named Earl Gray. Now, she gets pulled into all sorts of different crazy mysteries. And it turns out she's a pretty smart sleuth, even though the police kind of hate it when she gets involved. In this one, she's standing on top of a fancy mansion 
uh, on the battery overlooking Charleston Harbor, and they're watching the Ghosts and Galleons parade going by, and suddenly they hear this thump, 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 like a flat tire hitting the road, and it's somebody who's fallen over the railing and plunging down uh, the roof the roof line, hitting balconies and balustrades as they go. And everybody is screaming, and they're horrified, and Theodosia runs down, and she's thinking, hopefully they landed on some cushy bushes or something, and possibly they're still alive. Well, they're not. They landed on a, an ancient wrought iron fence with these sharp tips, and everybody thinks that's the cause of the murder. But she looks at it a little more carefully and realizes that this poor man who fell was shot with a, with a bow and arrow. There's a very short metal uh, antique uh, arrow through him, mm-hmm. and that's what he died of. That's what caused him to fall. So she gets involved in the mystery. She's she's right there, and she starts to get pulled into, you know, who are the different suspects and who could have done this horrible deed. You know, I'm a huge cozy fan. I, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Murder, She Wrote. Anybody who listens to the show always knows I always tout Murder, She Wrote and Columbo and those shows because I'm a huge mystery fan. And the one thing that I always that I always find interesting is when you're reading a cozy, and now that you're kind of in book 19, it's the it's the way that the the character is always able to be pulled into the mystery. It's like an excitement that they kind of have. You know, they're upset that they see a dead body, but then they're always kind of excited a little bit that they're able to kind of solve a mystery. How, is, is it kind of fun when, when you're sitting down to kind of write to, to kind of figure out how am I going to, you know, pull her into this one? Because she's really not a cop, so she kind of has to be pulled into these things in order to, you know, have a book, basically. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And she is pulled in here because she's, she's right there. She sees it happen. And then, of course, uh, usually somebody kind of asks her to get involved. She's developed, now it's the 19th book, so she's developed kind of a reputation as being this snoopy but clever sleuth. So the owner of the house uh, kind of asks, asks, asks her to get involved, to see what she can do. So she's running kind of a, a shadow investigation, you might call it. You know that right. parallels what the police are doing. And you know the one thing also that is that is so intriguing that I love about uh, you know these kinds of books, the, the the settings. It's not just the setting of her shop, but it's the setting of you know the town. And this time, you know, like you have it set in Charleston in, in this book, and so it's always the setting that brings those things to life, and it brings you know a lot of a lot more mystery, I think, to the books. How you know? How do you kind of sit down and figure out? You know, first of all, you know, why did you decide to pick Charleston? You know, as your as your main as your main focus. But then, you know, why did you pick T? Well, I knew quite a bit about T, and the the publisher was looking for somebody to do a cozy about T. That was kind of set in stone, but they didn't mm. know they didn't know you know how or or why it would happen. And my, my agent said to me, oh, they're looking for somebody to do something about tea. And I said, well, good sakes, I know all there is to know about tea. And she said, no, 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 no. They're looking at ten different authors who've already been published. They've, they've done this, you know, many, many times. And I said, no, listen, I've, I've been to China, I've been to Japan, I've done tea tastings, I've been to little tea shops around the world. I said, I even visited a tea plantation. Now, I didn't tell her it was on the bullet train going from Tokyo to Kyoto at 120 miles an hour. And my husband I was said, on that train. Tea plantation. I've been on Were that you train. Really? Yeah. Yes, I and have you, been. Once you, 
once you get past Mount Fuji, you look up and there's all these green terraced hillsides. Yeah, everywhere. And and yeah, everywhere. And that those are deep plantations. Yeah. So yeah, I just ended up writing three chapters and a and a and a maybe a twelve page synopsis, and I got the got the uh, contract based on that. Now, why Charleston? Mm. Well, there's a tea plantation in Charleston. Mm. I mean, I looked this up, and it's like, oh, my gosh, you know. It's the oldest tea plantation in this country. There's only about three or four different tea gardens. But this one came from, it came from stock that was brought over during the Revolution. It's kind of like when you grow tea, it's like growing wine. You need that that root stock. And someone Mm -hmm. had brought it over at the time of the American Revolution, and that tea garden is still going 200 and almost 250, 245 years later. Nice. Yeah, and that's something that you don't even really know about. I had no idea I that know. you need to have those kind it. of roots for that stuff. I, I didn't realize it either until I started doing research on tea. Fabulous, huh. Fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff. And yeah, I've made you know, Charleston. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go Keep going. Okay. I was going to say, I've made Charleston into a kind of character in itself in, in the different books. And I try to be faithful right down to the last antique cobblestone. The places that I write about, Church Street or Gateway Walk or Dooler's Alley or White Point Gardens right down there on the peninsula that faces the Atlantic, uh, they're all real places. And I try to capture that charm and that allure with words. Uh, I kind of want you to be able to picture the Spanish moss, you know, swaying in the trees and, and smell the Atlantic air coming in and, and have that feeling if you're running, if you're walking down one of those very narrow ancient alleys in Charleston, that there might be some footsteps, you know, coming up behind you. I want you to feel it. I want you to get that sense of place. That's yeah, the fun I mean, because. <laughs> Because that's the whole community about, you know, cozy. I mean, when people go onto your website, which I will say, laurachilds.com goes on your website, you have, mm-hmm. you know, tea resources. You have, you know, a, a lot more expansion. I mean, there's, there's recipes and things inside the book. You know, so that's right. It, yeah. it's, it's more than just writing a mystery. It's now become like a community. It really is, yeah. And and I think with the recipes, I thought, you know, if you're reading in the book about lemon scones or cat head biscuits or something kind of quaint like that, why wouldn't you want to learn how to make them? So I put the recipes in the back of the book in all the for all the tea sandwiches and the tea breads and the biscuits and the scones that I write about. It's just really fun. It makes it kind of interactive. You can now, read what- the book and make the scones. Now, now, you know, I, I read, I've read a lot of interviews and things with Agatha Christie, and of course, she's my favorite, you know, who done it writer um, of all time. I think a lot of people use her as the, you know, the go-to of, you know, of how to how to do a who done it. And the one thing right. that she said that she did is she would write the book out and she would do the murder and the whole thing, and then she would go back and figure out who did it. I, so I'm kind of curious. You know, how is your kind of writing process when doing a whodunit? Because I've heard many different ways from many different authors, because this, this is a different genre than a thriller or like a suspense, because, you know, you have to leave the reader clues to who did it. You know, you don't need to do that in a thriller. You can just kind of surprise them at the end with, oh, it was the cop the whole time. Right. But here, right, yeah. you have to give the reader the sense that they can figure it out. So how That's does exactly your writing right. process go? Okay. I start out with... A concept. Sometimes that concept takes me an afternoon to come up with. Sometimes it takes me two or three weeks. 
you know, for instance, um, this one where where the person falls off this the roof of the mansion that was easy. But I had one right before it where it was uh, there was a, a fancy jewelry show going on, and these black jeeps come crashing through it. These black SUVs crashing through, and guys jump out and they're wearing devil masks and they're doing a smash and grab. You know, like mm-hmm. often happens in New York or some of the European cities. Um, so I have to have that concept first in my head. I also have to have the title. Then what I do is I sit down with a big whiteboard and I put up all these different post-it notes. So I know I know who committed the murder, I know why they did it, and I always know my ending, okay? Then I start to fill it in with post-it notes. And I color code every one of them because I figure that my main character, my protagonist, Theodosia, has to rub shoulders with these suspects all the way through the book. Because if you bring somebody in at the end, that's kind of cheating. You, know, right. you have to let the readers kind of be guessing. Oh, it could be him, it could be her, it could be whatever. So I do that, and I do that, and it takes me about a week to do that. And then I transfer it all to my computer. I take it to about an 80-page outline. And then I do what I call my blitz. I just go back to Chapter 1, and I write all the way through it. I do not stop. I do not pass go and collect $200. I just <laughs> write it to the very, to the very bitter end. Then I let it sit for uh, maybe a couple days, and I go back, and then I start punching it up. Okay. And I usually go through a manuscript maybe three or four times. Sure. And you just it's it's like making you know a good beef bourguignon. You keep adding little things, a little touch of wine, a little bit of this, a little few more mushrooms, you know, and you make it a richer, richer broth. And that's basically what I do. Now the other thing is my cozies are not actually cozies. I call them thrillers, thrillsies. Mm-hmm. Because they're a hybrid thrillsies. between a cozy thrillsies. They're thrillsies. Yeah. They're a hybrid between a cozy and a thriller. I always start off with a huge big bang. There's something major that happens. You know, it's a big car accident. It's a, it's a, you know, the SUV's crashing through the window. It's some guy tumbling off. It's, it's a ship that suddenly explodes. It's all sorts of crazy things. And then all the way through it, I have sometimes I have a second homicide. But I always have two or three or four major, major things that happen that just you're, you're throwing this stuff in front of the protagonist so that it just makes it harder and harder and harder for them to solve this mystery. And I always end with a huge, huge ending. You know, I've had food truck chases. I've had cemetery, you know, creepy cemetery crawls. I've had mm-hmm. marauding alligators and you know, all sorts of, you know, wild things, uh, you know, shootouts. You know, whatever you can come up with, fires, explosions, everything. So it's really not a cozy, per se. It is a thrillsy. It's a hybrid. A lot, know, of, people write yeah. cozy, a lot yeah. of people write cozy, and nothing happens in the third chapter. To me, I say, boring. I put yeah. it all in the first chapter, just front load the whole darn thing. And it seems and to work. So, I have a lot of people who love that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, because it, it makes for – so – because, because you know, I always say there's two paces to a book. There's either the thrill pace that goes really fast or there's yeah. the suspense pace that kind of brings people through. And most mysteries are under the suspense pace. You know, it's just, it just kind of brings right. people through and proddingly mm-hmm. go. So when you speed it up and you do it that way, what challenges do you have um, within the writing process when you decide to speed it up? Well, I have to come up with a whole bunch of crazy things that happen. And I mm-hmm. usually have to make the whole plot – unfold in about a week's time when you if you have a murder happen on a saturday night you want to wrap it up by the following saturday at least i do in my books 
because that really makes me uh, have to figure out how to bring it all these different suspects, all these different characters, make them interact with, with Theodosia, my main character in the mm-hmm. T-Shop Mysteries. Yeah, and then kind of wind it up. Yeah, so it's a fast pace. But it's not. It's, it's great that way. Now, when people go to your website, again, laurachilds.com, they're going to notice that you have several other books, though, several other series. Do they, you know, so when you're doing, you know, the Cackleberry Club Mysteries or the Scrapbook Mysteries, and, and you know, do you still have, will they see the same Laurel Childs kind of in each one? Or, or is it a different kind yeah. of little writing style that they have? No. No, it's the same style. It's always a okay. it's always a big opening. It's a big opening first chapter and lots of different things going on and a really really big ending. Again, car chases, snowmobiles crashing through the through the ice, you know that kind of thing. It's really big. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not cozy where somebody just you know comes up and says, "I think you did it." You know, no, that doesn't work right. for me. No. Now, when of course you know you're contracted to do the tea shop mysteries. Now, are you contracted to do any other ones right now? Um, well, I just signed a four-book contract on the Tea Shop Mysteries, and I've okay. got two books. Le- I've got two books left on my contract for Scrapbook, and one book left on Cackleberry Club. The Cackleberry so, Club, I I love that one because it's it's these three women who are over forty, and they run this little place called the Cackleberry Club, and they basically serve eggs in the morning and murder on the side. And they've all lost their husbands for some reason, okay? One woman's husband died. One woman's husband has Alzheimer's. And a third woman's husband ran away with a floozy bartender from the VFW with the hot pink extensions in her hair. So nice. I try to make them really, really funny, too. Cackleberry is yeah. funny. It's very humorous. I mean, is that kind of – and that's what I was going to kind of say, because since they're all the characters are a little different – does it make it fun for you when you're able to jump kind of back and forth and you're like, you know, this is more comedic or this is a little bit more serious or this is a little bit more romantic? You know, it, right. d- does that keep you fresh as an author? Oh, I think it does totally, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that, yeah. And sometimes I'll write two books at once and I'll jump back and forth. Oh, no, that's, you know, I'll, I'll, you get, that's, a, that's a big whiteboard yeah. with a lot of Post-its on it now. <laughs> well, no, it's, I don't do that until I have them on my computer when I have a, a, oh, good, okay. a good 80-page outline. Yeah. Uh, okay. Once I know where I'm Good. going, then it's easy to jump back and forth. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because with 42 books, I mean, that's a lot of different plots. I mean, that's a lot, a lot of different mysteries it? because you never want to yeah. do the same thing twice. You never want, you no. know, the same kind of crime to leak into another one. So, you know, yeah. how, how how difficult is the process for you to kind of be able to just make things like those things fresh all the time? You know, it's actually really easy. There's so many delicious ways to kill people. I mean, I haven't even scratched the surface, I feel. And it's kind of like what I did in advertising. I was in advertising. I owned my own agency for 20 years. And at that point, I would have, you know, between 15 and 20 clients at any given moment. So I had to keep their marketing plans all straight, and I had to keep their, you know, their creative uh, campaigns straight and jumping mm-hmm. back and forth. So it's, it's a lot of the same. It's what I learned in business is transferable to writing mysteries. Now, now the other good thing about, you know, Cozy's, is you can kind of jump into the series wherever you want. So, you know, even though, you know, Plum Tea Crazy is book number 19, if somebody goes out and they decide that that's the book they want to start with, that's okay. You know, then they it's can okay. kind of work their way around and maybe read the back of the books to see, you know, maybe which crime or, you know, uh, I guess once, you know, like what you, you know, with instincts you got going on, you know, makes it, um, 
easier for them, or, you know, makes it exciting for them that they want to jump into it. So they can kind of just jump in wherever they feel like. They really can't. All of my books are written as standalones. I mean, granted, the characters are going to change a little bit, you know, over time. Sure. But, but not that much, because, because readers don't want them to change a whole lot. Right. I mean, I think basically in the tea shop mysteries, the only thing I've really changed is that Theodosia, my main character, moved from her apartment above the tea shop to a quaint little cozy cottage, you know, a, a few blocks away in the historic district. And even that was fraught with disaster because they were, you know, yeah, yeah, hey, 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 in the hey, backyard. Don't be going overboard on the change here, Laura. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you have to dig up some bones in the backyard before she can Yeah, you got to keep got to keep course. this conservative now. You moving somebody from an apartment to a cozy cottage, you are overstepping the bounds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's true. I mean, you know, when I watch the murder she wrote or when I, you know, read these kinds of books, I just I want the story to be the mystery. I don't care about the underlining little tone of, you know, is this person going to go date this person or this. I, that doesn't that doesn't do anything for me. It really doesn't. I want the mystery. I want the I want the meat. You know, I want the meat and potatoes. I don't care yeah, about the, the butter. I'm the same way, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm the same way. I think most readers are like that, too. Yeah, they want, you know, what's the story? What's the plot? What's going to happen next? You know, how does it kick off? What's the big kickoff? Yeah. And, and, and yeah, what's the best type of email thrill. you get? The, the best type of email that you must have to get is the one that sits there and says, you know what? You got me on this one. You stumped me. I didn't figure out who did it. Or maybe sometimes, you know, people stumble in and say, oh, I knew it was, you know, John who did it, but I didn't know how he did it. And, you know, yeah. that's kind of also the mystery. You might figure out that it was Colonel Mustard, but did you know yeah. it was a revolver? You know, it's like, <laughs> right. so those types of things. Yeah, yeah. Most of the emails I get are, I never figured it out until the end, and they're always happy about that. And there's a yes. few that are, you know, they, they want to talk about how clever they were and they figured it out. But then they always say they still enjoyed it. So that's good. It works both ways then. Yeah, yeah and, then you kind of look, and then you kind of look back as a reader and you're like, damn it, you know, I knew that that blue brooch was going to be important, but I just right. didn't put it in, you know, the back of my mind at that time. Right. The blue brooch bloch that was on a, on a dead corpse in a coffin and somebody stole it. Yeah. Right. I have that and one. Like, oh. Yeah, I knew. I knew that was going to be important. So, but and then, but that's but that's the good thing because like on every page, there's something you kind of have to pay attention to. There there's is. something that's, a lot of you know, there's something in. that yep. you have to do. Mhm. Yeah. Yep. I love doing that. I love constructing the red herrings, throwing them in, scattering them in, and then the real stuff too. And and do you do you do a lot of book clubs? Do a lot of book clubs talk to you, and they they want to be able to like you know. Yeah, they do. Talk to yeah. you maybe over Skype or something like that. Sure, sure. I do lots of that. Yeah. That's a lot yeah. of fun. I always love to, uh, you know, talk to the readers because I learn things too. I I learn what they like and and what bothers them a little bit. You know, not mm-hmm. too much, but sometimes they'll bring up a point and I'll think, well, that's valid. I'll I'll work on that. You know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I always kind of say that I think social media is a weapon of mass destruction, but I think that it can be used in a good way with things like this. Like you are able to see what interests the reader like the day after the book comes out where before you know you were writing without the internet and stuff you were only hearing the reviews when your publisher gave it to them you weren't able to kind of see them out there now you can see it all the time everything you were in a total vacuum then yeah yeah Yeah. now you get yeah i get yeah i i have people who get uh the mysteries downloaded at 1201 on the publication day and they Mm -hmm. start reading and they read like all night 
And then when I get up and I go to my computer like at 8 in the morning, I've already got people who said, oh, I love the book. I finished it. I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm sorry. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it's, it's almost like Thanksgiving <laughs> dinner. I always do. laugh. It's like it takes you six hours to do Thanksgiving dinner, yeah. and then it's done in 15 minutes. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> Yeah, you're like, it took me eight months to write this book, and you're yes. finished with it in three hours? Yes. yes. Yeah. And yeah. then two days after the book has come out, I get, When's the I'll next get one come? hundreds. <laughs> well, right. Exactly. That's it. That's the next question. When's the next, when the next one, one is. Yeah. And it's I like, said, well, you, you're in what? luck because there's a scrapbook mystery in October. Right. Cackleberry in December. And they go, oh, no, no, no. When's the tea, though? I said, well, it comes out every March. You know, it's, yeah, it's so, kind of like Groundhog hey. Day, you know. <laughs> You know what? You blew it. You binge watched everything on day one, and now you got a whole 365 to wait. You just couldn't take yeah. your time, could you? Yeah. See, you open your presents Christmas Eve, don't you? Too. Uh huh. Just couldn't wait. <laughs> but you know, but that's kind of the way that it goes, and and I understand because yeah. people do get excited. But it is good that you are able to, you know, do have other series and. And even though it's not the same characters, at least, like you said, it's still the same Laurel Childs. It's still the same writing. It's still the same, you know, kind of premise. And, you know, people can still have, you know, that sense of fulfillment of being able to, you know, read those books. And cozy readers are very loyal. I they're, mean, they're very, very loyal. loyal. They're just wonderful. I love them. Yeah. I love them to death, yeah. Absolutely. Do you go to a lot of conferences? I don't. I don't because I'm always writing. Okay. I'm just I'm writing all the time. I'm excepting football season. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> that I don't work on yeah. Sunday, but I usually I usually write six days a week. You know, at least I, this I, year, being a Viking fan, we we were able to make oh. it all the way through into January. But some years, yeah. the writing could start like the middle of November because the season's over. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you just we never see know. what happens next year, next season. Really. You know, because the Minnesota uh, State motto is, again, wait till next year. That's what I always wait say. Wait till next year, yeah. Right. Yeah, we'll get them next year. We'll get them next year. So <laughs> what is the do. best way for people to, you know, contact you or, you know, stay abreast of everything that you, you know, that's new that you have going on? You want to give yeah. out your Facebook and Twitter and things? Well, I just have Facebook. It's just it's okay. uh, Laura Childs, and then I have another one that is Laura Childs Author. So I really have two Facebooks. And then uh, just laurachilds.com, my website. That's the best, that's the best place. Stuff on there. It's a good place, yeah. Yeah. It's a good place, yeah. And then do you course, do a lot of um, Do you do yeah. a lot of media and things? Um, a lot of press for you know a new book that you got coming out. I do tons of it. I do yeah. tons of it. I, you know, I being an ex-marketing guy, I consider what I do sixty percent writing and forty percent marketing. Yeah. I am nice. always working on the marketing as- aspect of it, especially with three books a year. You you have and to. And is a lot of it virtual, of or do you or do you do do you still go out and do book signings? Oh, I do book signings too. Sure. Oh, I'm always yeah. yeah. I I did one last Saturday. I've got one this coming Saturday. I did well. Actually, I did two last week too. I went over where's to where's next Saturdays? Eight. Next Saturday's going to be at Once Upon a Crime Mystery Bookstore in uh-huh. Minneapolis. Oh, nice. And I I was just there the week before, but they're having actually they're having their anniversary. They're having several authors come in, several mystery oh, authors. Oh, cool! So, so that's always fun, yeah. When you're yeah with other mystery authors, yeah. Well, like you said, you know, I said off the air, I used to live in Minnesota, so hopefully the weather will agree with you. Um, that would be good. Well, it's 50 degrees now and sunny, so it's getting better. Oof, you can see that's, the end. That's odd for Minneapolis, yeah. but 
Next week, it could snow 18 inches and be 10 oh, degrees. Good. You just never know. Oh, yeah. It, it can snow in April. Yeah, we've had oh, snow yeah. in May. Oh, yeah. We had so. that. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you remember. Yeah, you were here. Oh, yeah. I remember it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, Laura. I want to thank you so much for coming on. It has been a blast. Uh, first time on this the radio show. Great. And so we were, it's so nice that we were able to finally talk. And, you know, congratulations on the new book coming out. Looking forward to seeing all the other ones you have coming out. And, of course, next March, another Tea Shop Mystery, book number 20. That's a nice milestone. A celebration, an anniversary of something. Nice yeah. milestone. So, it really is, yeah. All right, Laura. Well, thank you so much. You have a good one. We will talk soon. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Appreciate Bye-bye. it. Bye-bye. So, again, everybody, that is author Laura Childs. Make sure you visit laurachilds.com for more information on all of her series, including the Tea Shop Mystery Series, which has book 19, which is out now, called Plum Tea Crazy. So in the meantime, we're going to take a short break, and we will be back here with our next guest. And I know that he's going to have to tell me that I pronounced his last name incorrectly because I know I'm going to screw it up. But it's Thomas Greenius, and we will be back with him right after this. After the break, I'll tell you, I don't know if it was my trip to Thailand. I don't know what happened, but I got my guests mixed up. But I'm extremely happy because it's not Thomas that's going to be joining us, um, and I'm not sure why I wrote that down or whatnot. Actually, it's going to be our good friend Dennis Palumbo. And if you readers of the magazine, you're going to know, of course, Dennis has fabulous articles um, that he writes about and gives authors some outstanding tips on things because Dennis has been in the game for quite some time. Uh, it was great that we're able to, you know, connect with him and that he does a lot of things for the magazine and things like that. Um, and so this is the first time we've had him on the show, and his latest book is out, and it's called Head Wounds. And 
this is uh, this newest in his Daniel Ronaldo mystery series. So we are excited to be able to bring, and I'm going to edit all this so you guys all know. So we are excited to bring Dennis on the show. So, Dennis, thank you so much for coming on. So sorry that I kind of screwed up the uh, my writing down, but I'm so happy that you're here. Oh, me too. Thank you so much, John. Glad to be here. Yeah, and again, again, don't worry. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to edit this. I'm going to have the description all right and everything, so everybody's going to be super excited um, to be able to listen to you and to be able to talk and hear you about your latest book, Head Wounds. That's right. That's why it's, we're uh, yeah, you're, the fifth book in in the Daniel Rinaldi series, which yeah. is about Daniel Rinaldi, a, a a psychologist and trauma expert who consults with the Pittsburgh police. And uh, the series is set in Pittsburgh, which is my hometown. Even though I've lived in Los Angeles uh, for almost forty years, uh, I I wanted to always set a series of mysteries in Pittsburgh because it's such a fascinating character in its own right. And I think what makes this new book in the series uh, kind of fascinating, particularly for longtime readers, is we finally find out what happened to Daniel Rinaldi's late wife. And uh, we, get, we get to finally, you know, put a period at the end of that sentence. And I'm very gratified by how people have been responding to it. So I'm really excited. And uh, I'll be in Pittsburgh, actually, next week doing a bunch of book signings and radio and stuff. So it's kind of an exciting time with this new release. You know, and we just had Laurel Childs on, and she's, you know, kind of a, more of a, she's more of a cozy writer. And, of course, now having you on, which is such a different writing style, because, you know, you're more psychological thriller, and it's a little bit more in-depth and detail. Uh, I mean, it's a little bit more, you know, intense, um, of course, That's you know, right. with, with your writing. And you do have those undertones, you know, that storyline that kind of goes uh, with Dennis and, and the arc that kind of goes through book five uh, now, along with every book has its own setting. So how would you say that kind of Dennis – or not Dennis. I keep saying freaking Dennis. Why do you say Daniel Rinaldi? <laughs> I think it's Dennis and Daniel. I get my names. So why, how would you say that Daniel has kind of progressed now from book one into book five – um, as his as a character, well, you know, as you as you point out, I mean, uh, I'm an author of mysteries, but my day job, I, I'm a psychologist, and I've been in private practice over 28 years. So, one of the things that motivates my writing of this series is getting inside the head of a psychologist and what he goes through, he or she goes through, uh, you know, dealing with patients. And since he is a consultant to the Pittsburgh Police. He's gotten personally involved in a lot of very intense, high-profile cases. And I think where he's mostly grown is is his dealing with his own survivor guilt. Uh, what got him into consulting with the police and working with the victims of violent crime is that he and his wife years before were mugged coming out of a restaurant in Pittsburgh. Gunshots ensued. His wife was killed. He was wounded, but he survived. And because he survived, he has a common PTSD symptom, which is survivor guilt. But it was also the origin and genesis of his mission to help those traumatized by violent crime. And the way I think he's changed, well, there's a couple ways. First of all, because he's been involved in some high-profile cases, and much to the consternation of the Pittsburgh Police Department, he's all over CNN and a lot of other shows as a kind of talking head expert, so he's become a little bit of a, a, a of a media darling, 
and that really has changed uh, the way people around him see him. And also, you know, his friends and family are concerned because he'll do very risky things, and they'll say, you know, this is a hero complex. You're trying to earn the fact that you survived when your wife didn't. And I think over the course of the books, he's gotten more mature and has been able to process that issue such that I think it's beginning to fade the idea that he has to earn uh, the fact that he survived. And I think it allows him now, for example, to even have relationships with other women, which he forced, you know, forswore for a while. So he's slowly, I think, coming out of a kind of uh, self-imposed prison in terms of his relationships and his view of himself. And I think the readers enjoy seeing his growth in that way. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the one thing, you know, when you're writing a series like this in Thriller that, you know, the, the, the character, a lot of the times they have to be somewhat damaged because if they're happy-go-lucky, it's almost like, well, that's kind of really boring. So there has to be some kind of damage, some kind of demon that they're always, you know, fighting and that they're always trying to have to get through. And a lot of the times that leads to some stumbles within the, you know, the arc of the story. So is that a challenge kind of for you to – be able to make sure that, you know, you do keep that kind of, um, you know, pace with your main character and Daniel, but also interweave it with the story that he's now in that makes it, you know, challenging for him while he's facing his demons and the things that he's trying to overcome. Oh, it's a big challenge, particularly because I write very propulsive, intense, psychological thrillers where you know where where there's a lot of suspense and I keep you know tightening that screw throughout the book so his own demons make it harder and harder for him to deal with the the these uh, twists and turns uh, uh the thing is what I think the reader relates to is no matter how damaged he is he has this focus and this mission in his head and I agree with you uh, if a character Two things. Number one, I think a character like all of us has to be flawed in some way for us to relate to him. But secondly, I think that as he does what it is he does, his, his it, sometimes the very flaw can in fact help him, motivate him, and give him insights. In right. Head Wounds, for example, not only the fact that he's a psychologist, but the fact that he himself uh, is psychologically damaged helps him get into the head of the villain and and who is himself very psychologically damaged though brilliant and uh one of the other things about head wounds that is very exciting for me is that you know the previous four books while they've been thrillers they've also been whodunits we don't know who the bad guy is pretty much till the end in head mm-hmm. wounds we tell the reader right off the bat who the bad guy is, a computer genius and a delusional man named Sebastian Maddox. And so the book becomes more of a cat-and-mouse game between Maddox and Daniel Rinaldi, something I'd never done before and was a real challenge uh, to keep ratcheting up the, the twists and turns and suspense. Yeah, see, that's the thing that I don't think a lot of fans understand, and I always try to you know mention that when, when I interview authors, is, is that, you know, sometimes fans are like, you know, why did you do this or why did you do this? And it's like, well, sometimes the author needs to keep themselves fresh. You know, so the, you know, the authors, you know, need 
can't write the same book over and over and just change the names of the characters, but it's kind of the same thing. You know, they kind of need to keep themselves fresh because otherwise you you just kind of get bored. And when oh, did you yeah. decide to kind of make that decision that you wanted to to write the book and go this way? I made the decision once I knew who the bad guy was and what his motivation was. I thought it was so interesting. I didn't want to hold it to the end of the book. I wanted to explore it and address it. And uh, if you've read the book, you, you, you see that not only does this give me an opportunity to spend a lot of time with the villain, as opposed to having the villain be one of a cast of people who could perhaps be the bad guy. It allows me to spend a lot of time with him, and through his interactions with my hero, we learned so much about Daniel Rinaldi's wife that he didn't know about, her life before he met her, which is the catalyst for the cat-and-mouse game between the villain and our hero. Our, uh, Daniel Rinaldi did not even know that his late wife had a relationship with this antagonist way before he met her. And that is the genesis for the the villain's you know uh, reign of terror and, and seeking revenge. And it did, as you say, it allows it, the book to stay fresh for me. I don't like writing the same book over and over again. But I'm also very lucky in that I think I have a pretty rich... Uh, cast of supporting characters and they take the books in all kinds of directions which I often don't know when I'm starting the books I tend to let the characters tell me where the story's going and what their relationships are and how these relationships are changing and that makes the books fresh for me I, I literally don't know when I start a new Daniel Rinaldi book exactly what's going to happen I don't even know who the bad guy is most of the time so that was a real departure for me with this book. Now, when you're, and that's, a, and that's a good segue into the question I have. When you're sitting down and getting ready to kind of write another book, do you make sure that you, whatever plot you're going to do, you fit it to fit Daniel Rinaldi, or, or do you kind of sit there and say, well, you know, that plot won't really work for him, so you're not going to force the square peg in the round hole, and you maybe have you know, 50 or 60 plots that you're sitting there percolating for another book or another character, you know, how is it that when you're able to kind of then get down into the Daniel Rinaldi book, you know, how does that kind of thought process, you know, work? Is it like the chicken or the egg, uh, I guess, theory? Well, it's a little chicken or the egg, though I'm a big believer that we have to, the reader has to believe that this person, in my case, a psychologist, would actually get involved in these crimes. One of the reasons that I made him a consultant for the Pittsburgh police is that he has some legitimate reason to be involved. But if you think about the the plots of each of the books, I always make sure it relates to him in some way that makes sense. Um, in Mirror Image, the first book, it's a patient who looks like him who gets killed, and so everyone thinks, well, maybe Daniel was the real victim, the intended victim, and so he feels he has some obligation to help in that case. In Fever Dream, the second book, uh, there's an armed bank robbery with hostages, and one of the hostages is released, and she's in such shock, the cops can't get any information out of her about what's going on inside the bank. So Daniel is brought in to help her deal with that. And in the third book, Night Terrors, 
uh, an FBI agent is struggling with night terrors, someone who had been a profiler for 25 years, you know, who had spent his whole career in the heads of the worst serial killers known to man, and now he can't sleep without debilitating night terrors. And so the FBI brings Daniel in to help him. In, in Phantom Limb, his patient is kidnapped right outside of his office, and the kidnappers use Daniel as the guy delivering the ransom. And so I always have to make sure that Daniel's involvement makes some kind of sense. You know, he's not just some guy who thinks, well, I think it'd be interesting to solve a crime. That that aspect of the amateur sleuth has always made me crazy. Uh, so I try to position Daniel within the scope of the cases going on such that it makes sense that he'd be involved. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. Yeah, and that's good. Yeah, I like that. That's good. So I, I, when people go on your site here, DennisPalumbo.com, I want to make sure that you know you get that out there. So DennisPalumbo.com, when, when they click on your bio, they're going to notice something. And so I want to try to take one, 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 you know, I want to kind of take a train here and go from one station to the other. How did you go from Welcome Back, Cotter, to killing people? <laughs> Well, that's a great question, and, and you know we are talking only killing them in the literary sense, of course. Sure, uh, Dennis. Whatever. Yeah. How did you go? Yeah, <laughs> I started. I started my writing career uh, in Hollywood as a TV and film writer. Um, you know, I, as you mentioned, I, I worked on Welcome Back, Cotter. I co-wrote the film uh, My Favorite Year with Peter O'Toole. I was a TV and film writer for about 17 years in Hollywood, but mm -hmm. ironically, the first week. The, uh, of my starting on Welcome Back, Cotter, that same week I f sold my first mystery short story to Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine. I've always loved mysteries since I was a kid. I, I had the measles, and my dad bought me, when I was about 10, I guess, he bought me The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. And mm. I read these, these. This was a big illustrated book, you know, where you crack open the binding and you smell that wonderful smell of the pages. And it had all those city pat pageant illustrations, I absolutely fell in love with mysteries and swore to myself that at some point in my life I was going to create a series character. So the whole time I was writing for film and television, I was still writing and selling mystery short stories, you know, to Ellery Queen, to The Strand, to a bunch of places, mm -hmm. and always thought that I wanted to get around to writing uh, um, a mystery series at some point. So then when I you know, switch careers and, and became a, a uh, licensed therapist and retired from show business, I thought, well, if I'm going to do a book series, I think the hero should be a, a therapist like me, and I've always wanted to write about Pittsburgh <clears throat> because it's such a changing town. It's not the yeah. smoky skies, industrial, <laughs> blue-collar town that it used to be it's when I was It's Silicon kid. Valley of the East now, from what I hear. No, absolutely. In fact... Yeah. <clears throat> it's it's the the leading center for not only medicine but state of the art technology. Uh yeah. in fact robotics which is going to change all of our lives. Uh the robotics revolution is all happening in Pittsburgh. Both at Pitt it really and reinvented Carnegie itself. Mellon. It really yeah, it, reinvented, it literally itself. reinvented itself. In fact, you know, my my <clears throat> hero's best friend Noah Fry has a bar on 2nd Avenue. And that Second Avenue, when I was in college, was where J and L steel mills were. I worked at J and L steel to put myself through college, 
and those mills are all gone now. Yeah. And so Pittsburgh has become so gentrified, you don't even recognize downtown. But what's so fascinating about Pittsburgh is there'll be some new steel and glass building that maybe is going to be the new Amazon headquarters or this is where they're working on nanotechnology. And yet two streets over will be a cobblestone street with the old streetcar track still embedded in it. It's, a, it's literally a shot in a beer town that's collided with the information age. And what I, I like about my lead character, Daniel Rinaldi, like me, he has a foot in both worlds. He came from a blue-collar background. He was the first in his generation to go to college or to be a professional. Well, that's true of me, too. And so I really like having him straddle both the world of the new gentrified, you know, Pittsburgh that the Rand Corporation says is the number one place in America to live and the old Pittsburgh filled with ethnic pride and ethnic prejudices and old streets and old neighborhoods some of which now are becoming so gentrified that people who've lived there for generations can't afford to live there anymore. Yeah. You know, so you hear that it, in a lot it, of cities a, now. Yeah. Yeah, no, so one of the things that my readers tell me all the time is they like how the books reflect this tension that's going on uh, uh, among people in Pittsburgh as the, the city they knew is literally disappearing right in front of their eyes. Yet there's value in the new Pittsburgh that's coming. So I, I like that dichotomy. Now, do you have one story, though, of writing Welcome Back, Cotter? Because we, we talked before, and I thought that the writing process was fascinating – how they would like film it downstairs, you were kind of upstairs, and then they were kind of, you know, you're kind of moving things back and forth real fast. You know, just to give people like an inside look into what is it kind of like to write for, first of all, first of all an iconic show that, you know, it was back in the 70s, but of course John Travolta was on it. Everybody knows the Sweat Hogs. I mean, you're never going to forget them. You know, how, do you, have, do you have some kind of like a funny story or, you know, how is it like to write for something like that? Well, I, I can tell you that it, it, we had a sign on the door of the writer's room. You're right. It was upstairs in a suite of offices, and the, the, the set was downstairs, you know, on the stage, soundstage. Mm -hmm. And we had a sign outside the writer's room that said, it left here funny. And <laughs> because actors would constantly, the director would call us and say, uh, actor X here doesn't want to say this line. He doesn't think it's funny. So one of us would have to go down and either, you know, threaten him and convince them it's funny, or write a new line. The 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 thing, one of the things I remember the most about the show, though, is uh, in the second season, John Travolta would come to rehearsal, and he would look so exhausted. And we'd say, you know, what's going on? He said, well, you know, every night for three hours, I'm taking dancing lessons for this stupid movie that I'm doing that I wish I could get out of. Nice and season. so we would just make fun of him so much and, of course, this was Saturday Night Fever. And then he came in with the poster, you know, where he's standing in the white suit and his, right. you know, his arm is you know, pointing up and stuff. And we gave him so much crap and made fun of him. And he went, oh, my God, how do I get out of this? This is going to be an embarrassment. Thank God I'm on a TV show. It'll be the end of my career. And, of course, it turned out to be the biggest movie of that year. And he mm -hmm. instantly became a movie star. And what was so funny, and, you know, John was a very sweet guy, and he would say, look, I don't want anything to be different. You know, I'm still just Barbarino, one of the four guys. 
But the networks went crazy and said, no, yeah. no, you have to make every story now about Barbarino. We have the number one movie star in the world in the cast of our show. So you have to make every episode about him. And he said, no, I won't. And so it was a fascinating period watching a guy from a TV show become this megastar. That by the third season, Grease had come out, and that was it. That put him over the top. Oh, yeah, that was done. And so there was just no getting around it. Uh, 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 and But that whole transformation of Travolta while we were writing Barbarino jokes just has a kind of surrealistic quality that I remember very well. Mm-hmm. And the two things I find funny about those two movies with Travolta, because I always, because, you know, those are the kinds of ones that catapulted him. The one, two things that those two movies that he did have in common that I don't think they would be as big as if they didn't is they both had tremendously successful and popular soundtracks. And I still think Saturday Night Fever is still the number one. Well, no, I think The Bodyguard is now number one. But I think that Saturday Night Fever held that for a long time that they were the biggest selling soundtrack with the Bee Gees. And I don't know if the movies would have been as popular and Grease if it wasn't for those soundtracks. The music the no, music I, I really think you're helped. absolutely right. But that was funny. That was at the end of a period where that was yeah. a very disco was done. part of pop culture. It's very different yeah. now. I mean, for example, a lot of people don't know, but like the most successful album in the whole 1950s and early 60s was the soundtrack to My Fair Lady. Well, yeah. nobody buys soundtracks like that anymore. No, I mean, no it, one does it, soundtracks it just, anymore. No, and so you don't have that experience where you're going to run down and buy the soundtrack for the Black Panther. It just it just doesn't right. work like that. So yeah. so yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It was one of those times where certainly in the case of the bodyguard where the music propels the movie and the movie propels right. the music. In fact, that was true of Flashdance as well. The, the Flash soundtrack too, of yeah. Flashdance really contributed to the movie's success and then the movie made people want to run out and listen to the soundtrack. Yeah, I mean, Footloose, Dirty Dancing. I mean, you can go on, and now there is no more soundtracks. They don't. You, no. you just, you just, you just don't do that anymore. And it's, you know, and it's really sad that they don't do that. I think the only film series that really excites people is James Bond because there still gets a big name person to do the theme song, even though I think the past couple theme songs have been absolutely horrid because they're so damn slow. And I'm like, why are you putting this massively slow song? onto an action film that's going to be action for two hours, but you got this slow song like it's like in mud. And I'm like, like, I think Sam Smith was the last one. I said, that was the most horrid soundtrack song I think I've ever heard besides that and Adele. I hated both of them. I'm like, it's just Oh, you didn't like sense. Skyfall? I think Skyfall did very well oh. for Adele. I think. Yeah, well, that's because it was just Adele. <laughs> well, don't hold if it was somebody John, else who I mean, sang I, the same song, nobody would have cared. so... You're you're so reticent in your opinion. I think you need to Oh work yeah, on it. I hated it. I thought it sucked. And you know, <laughs> and I just turned it and because I used to love those, you know, Live and Let Die, even Sheena Easton, and then you know, you had Carly Simon. I mean you had some great iconic songs from James Bond. And even Madonna's Die Another Day, I think, was the last really great one. A really good well, my one. My favorite I won't of course great. was Shirley Bassey's Goldfinger. That that Boy, goal, yeah. song was right. like number but that one on the chart the movie forever. A little bit. And, yeah, it made you want to go see the movie. You yes. really did. Yes. You know, but I will say, my favorite swag hog was Washington. He was my favorite. Ah. Not going to lie. I just lo- I, I loved his character. You know, I thought Epstein was good. I thought Horshack, you know, was always a little too dumb. 
and I knew that a lot of people liked him because of, I think, because of his dumbness, and then, of course, John Travolta was just popular. But Washington was, was my favorite guy. Mm. Um, yeah. So I didn't know if you guys – how many writers were in, like, a TV show like that? Six, seven? Yeah, it, well, we had a staff of about nine. Um, okay. And, and you know, as a lot of people go, gee, with nine comedy writers, why wasn't it funnier? But, oh. it, you know, it, 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 all sitcoms have groups of writers, and it's the same exact truth now with, like, those Chuck Lorre sitcoms like Big Bang. So yeah. you, you, it does, does take a village. Did Gabe Kaplan write his own joke at the beginning, or was that something that you guys wrote for him? Well, we actually, it's funny, those are old Catskill jokes, you know, uh, uh, that we all just kind of pulled from memory. Mm. Uh, in fact, one time Gabe told a joke at the front, and some old stand-up called and was furious and said that we stole, stole the joke from him. And our showrunner got on, on the phone and said, are you kidding? I know who you stole it from. And, you know, so <laughs> it, it, these jokes are so old. Yeah, that you don't even know where it started even, from. Yeah, it, we couldn't even remember where they came from, but they were all. Some of them went all the way back to vaudeville, which we well, all love. So. All I know is this: that the Seinfeld show should have given a credit to Welcome Back, Cotter, because Jerry Seinfeld stole Gabe Kaplan's opening when he used to tell the joke to his wife. That's exactly what Seinfeld did. It was just his stand-up, but it's like they're the only two to ever do it. It's like you know, give credit to where you got that from, dude. Yeah, well, I don't know. Jerry's show, they, they ended up dropping that after a season or two. Um, and, and the, didn't that just because that it was a stand-up opening. act, and it wasn't, you know, the when Gabe did it, it was within the confines of the show, and it was within the confines of his character. But when Jerry did it, it was just like watching his thing. But you know they, they stole that from Welcome Back, Cotter. I'm sorry, because no one else has done it but them. Well, I, I, I can't comment. I don't know for Maybe. sure. Nobody knows. I don't know. I'm just going to say they did, but... But, Dennis, I'll tell you what, it has been a fabulous conversation. I'm so glad that I screwed up my, my guest, and it was actually you coming on today. I want to thank you so much for, for coming out and talking about head wounds and a couple other things. Um, so when is book six? You got book six in the works, or are you going to have something oh else God, coming I'm, out I'm in the future? I'm just still trying to promote book five. You know? I, well, yeah, but you, you know, know remember, I have already very, been written. No, I have a full private practice. I have 40 patients a week. So while my mystery oh. writing colleagues can knock out a book every year, it takes me three. Uh, <laughs> I, I just don't – I don't have – literally don't have the time to write uh, when I have as many patients as, as I do. I'm a full-time therapist in my, in my private life, and so uh, I'm thrilled that I get the chance to publish these novels. But mm -hmm. uh, I'm not one of those guys that can crank them out once a year. Plus, I work on them very hard. I, I write them and yeah. rewrite them because the characterizations and the dialogue, I want to be a very rich experience for the reader. And I, I, you know, that's what matters to me. Yeah, and I'm sure the one thing, too, that um, is – I'm sure the one thing that you got is it's very difficult probably to um, not seek, you know, seep in some of your, you know, patient stuff into your books because that would just be that would, that would just not be right but i'm sure you got some fascinating stories that you could have put in there i could have but not, i don't i'm i'm very yeah, careful yeah. not you got to it, use I do that because you know they're probably going to read your practice. books and be like yeah 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 because yeah, yeah, also yeah, i don't have in my practice a bunch of kidnappers and murderers you know so that's you know, a damn shame very nice neurotic people and so <laughs> i i i, I 
the, really I couldn't plumb the depths of my practice at all. Um, well, better, but yeah. yeah, but mostly uh, uh, what what matters to me is giving the reader because the stories are in first person the experience of what's going on in the therapist's head during a session. Uh, right. People seem to find that interesting because they've always wondered. And I, I'm, I'm very liberal in doing that. Yes. Well, Dennis, again, I want to thank you so much for coming on. It's been absolutely fascinating. We love the articles in the magazine. Um, a lot of people always say that, that you know, they love reading, especially when you're, you know, when you're giving a lot of tips uh, for authors because, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of information out there that new authors can get, but it's always better when you get it from somebody that's been there and, and been through the process like yourself and, and going through it. So we want to thank you so much for that. Oh, my pleasure. I'm glad uh, those articles are of, are of use to people. Yes. So DennisPalumbo.com, the book is called Head Wounds. It is out now, the fifth in the Daniel Rinaldi Mystery Series. Dennis, thank you again so much, and we will talk with you soon. Okay, thank you so much, John. Take care. All right, bye-bye. So, again, everybody want to say, uh, you know, DennisPalumbo.com, the book is called Head Wounds. It's fifth in his Daniel Rinaldi Mystery Series. And, you know, make sure you go back and, and check out the other books, like he said, um, you know, Head Wounds and uh, Phantom Lamb and just some of the other great books that he has in that series. You want to make sure that you check that out. So we want to thank you all here for joining us today. It has been absolutely fascinating uh, conversation with two, uh, you know, authors on such the opposite kinds of sides of the spectrum here. We want to thank Laurel Childs for, for being on, too. So until next time, everybody, want to say thank you. Enjoy. Keep reading. See you all next time. Bye-bye.